Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy and the War Room Podcast Editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program. In an earlier podcast, our War Room Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Hill, and former War College Professor, Lynn Fullenkamp, explored the utility of staff rides in teaching strategy, and today's podcast expands on some of the topics explored there with a more specific focus on battlefields from the American Civil War. Here in Carlisle, we're quite close to several major battlefields, and some minor ones too, so staff rides to these sites form an important part of what we do here at the War College. I'm joined today by Dr. Chris Keller, who's a professor in the Department of National Security and Strategy and a historian of the American Civil War. He is also the Dwight D. Eisenhower Chair of National Security at the U.S. Army War College. So Chris, thanks for joining us here at the War Room. Hi, Jackie. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so here's the easy question for you. Um, how did you become interested in the American Civil War? And then the second question is, how many staff rides do you think you've done to Civil War battlefields? I can trace my interest in the American Civil War back to age four when I went to a reenactment at Gettysburg on the shoulders of my father uh, long, long ago. And that was when uh, the reenactors still used original weapons. Uh, that was uh, quite a while ago. They don't do that anymore. Uh, and growing up in this area, as I did, uh, because I, I'm a local uh, who has come back home uh, in many ways now that I'm teaching at the War College and have been for eight years, uh, this area is just oozing with history. It, it the, the ground oozes it. And... Our 19th century history is more pronounced in the south-central Pennsylvania region than even our colonial history is, which is also rich. But with the proximity of Gettysburg, for anyone who has a burgeoning interest in history, uh, it's almost unavoidable that you're going to uh, be attracted there like moths to a flame. And I could have pitched (laughs) a tent on the battlefield so many times when I was younger. Uh, And uh, when I went off to undergrad and grad, I would always come back always found myself down there just walking the fields. I have always been interested in the American Civil War. I think I knew I was going to be a Civil War historian by about age 12. Uh, It's that's that's impressive. I that was what I wanted to be uh, and I had a few detours along the way but (laughs) I think I landed on my feet. I have probably completed all told staff rides, bona fide staff rides. I'm probably up oh probably 150 at this point. All right. That's a that's a lot. Um, so I think your story about going to a battlefield with your father, I think, is familiar to a lot of people. Um, most people don't, of course, become professional historians, um, but a lot of people visited battlefields on summer vacations, uh, on road trips, or will stop even now. Um, but what's the difference between a battlefield visit and a staff ride? That's an excellent question, Jackie, and it's one that uh, I often get, uh, particularly from my colleagues in the Ivory Tower. A staff ride is 
essentially a special battlefield tour for military officers uh, and or uh, interagency civilians, uh, high-ranking civilians in government with a purpose of trying to convey insights that may be gleaned by walking the ground and studying the history uh, that occurred there for application in the modern day. Now, that's quite different, obviously, in the overall purpose of just a visit, a family going to Gettysburg or going to Antietam or, or uh, any of the fields uh, as kind of just a human interest uh, uh, visit. Uh, they might be uh, more interested in learning about Jenny Wade, uh, the only civilian mm-hmm. casualty at Gettysburg, and might go visit the Jenny Wade House, for instance. Uh, they may uh, uh, be attracted to uh, the uh, the Civil War Cat Museum, which has uh, uh, recently been erected at Gettysburg, uh, uh, just because it's interesting. Uh, they're not there to take something, extract something from the history that has value for modern-day decision makers. And that's really what the staff ride is about. You're trying to find a use for the history that you have studied. And a good staff ride, by the way, has several phases, one of them being the pre-study before you get to the field. Then you're actually on the field. uh, And uh, then there's reflection that goes on afterwards. After those phases are done, uh, the senior leader should have gotten good food for thought that will enlighten his thinking about current and future problems. It's quite different from how a, uh, uh, just an average family or an average visitor would think about a visit to, uh, say, Gettysburg. Sure. One of the things that I, I remember from sort of training as a, as a military historian is that the, the staff ride has this sort of long history, right, of utility um, going back a couple, um, I get really a couple centuries in some ways. Um, but there are different ways to conduct a staff ride. And, and in the earlier podcast, uh, Lynn talked a little bit about this, but let's, let's go over this sort of distinction between the sort of role-playing staff rides and a Socratic staff ride. The role-playing version of staff rides is the, uh, the old way, uh, that's been done, uh, for many, many years, uh, it was uh, actually first developed over in Europe. Uh, the Germans, uh, before World War I, uh, started doing staff rides and uh, uh, would visit the Napoleonic battlefields, uh, the battlefields of the Franco-Prussian War and the Danish-Prussian War and so forth. And uh, they would actually have their staff officers uh, role-play uh, significant leaders uh, on both sides in any of those uh, given campaigns. And the United States picked up on this practice in uh, the, uh, the 20th century. Uh, it started out at Fort Leavenworth. And the idea here is that participants of the ride uh, will, for a period in time during the ride itself, take on the persona of uh, a major military leader during the, that campaign. And, and it could be from either side, in the case of the Civil War, the Union, or the Confederate side. And... Uh, They are that general for that day, and the combination of the inputs from all of the participants, each assigned a different role, from the strategic level of leadership the whole way down to tactical, uh, would uh, produce an overall effect of reliving the decision-making that those senior leaders made on that field and help students come to understand why those decisions were made 
And then the facilitator of a role-playing staff ride should be able to tie together uh, these uh, observations and uh, offer some ideas for consideration about uh, modern-day problems. Uh, For example, if we understand why Lee ordered Pickett's charge on the third day at Gettysburg, what does this tell us about decision-making by military leaders in a crisis situation today? Uh, Questions like this. Uh, That would be what would happen in a role-playing staff ride. Uh, The Socratic method is what we do at the Army War College, and and other uh, senior service colleges follow this as well. And with the Socratic method, instead of assigning students roles, some of which are admittedly at the tactical level and would not gravitate students at the right level of war, uh, we uh, have them do overall background reading before they go on the ride, part of that phase of preparation. And then on the battlefield itself, the facilitator asks pointed questions. After giving a brief explanation at each stop or stand, as we call it, uh, outlining the basics of what happened there, and they actually launch right into so what for today questions. Uh, Questions such as, so, we know uh, that Robert E. Lee ordered Pickett's charge on the third day at Gettysburg. Uh, What do you think was going through his mind, group? And what does that tell us about decision-making in a Uh, in a crisis situation. The Socratic method really gets right to the meat and potatoes of the modern-day application uh, and uh, is probably more appropriate, we think, for senior-level leaders uh, when we take them on the fields. So rather than the facilitator being the one to make the connections and sort of draw things together, you're asking participants to do it. It also seems like that opens up more possibilities for places you can do staff rides for. Um, so at, when I worked at the Air War College, we would always joke that doing Air Force staff rides could could be a challenge, and, and certainly that's the case for role-playing types. But for a Socratic-type staff ride, you could imagine um, using those, ty- those different types of questions, even for an air campaign, even for something like that. Absolutely. And uh, if you really extrapolate it, you can use it for the sea domain also. Uh, naval leaders can adapt the Socratic method uh, to discuss uh, the great uh, naval campaigns, for example, in the Pacific and World War II, without actually having to go out right. there. Uh, you can have virtual staff rides, therefore, using a Socratic uh, method more easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that that would be optimal, but you could yeah. do it, uh, whereas you can't do it very well with uh, with the role-playing uh, model, which tends to be more suitable for field-grade officers and below, uh, you know, not the, the strategic-level thinkers uh, that we are educating here at the sure. War College. When, um, But there's something about being on the battlefield, Right. Um, So let's go back to those Civil War battlefields, of which there are, like we said, many in the immediate area, but also um, sort of throughout the United States in some ways. Um, And if you could, you can pick a specific Civil War battlefield, maybe one that you like. And if you were going to lead a staff ride there, uh, what are some of the sort of places and points you'd like to elicit most strongly? I have led staff rides, Jackie, at most of the great battlefields of the East, uh, from Virginia up to Gettysburg. And after all these years, my favorite staff ride remains Chancellorsville. And the reason for that uh, is because uh, 
first of all, uh, the field is not nearly as well visited, and you don't run into tourists and tour buses and delays in traffic and logistical harassments as much as you do if you happen to go uh, in the busy time down to Gettysburg. Antietam shares this attribute with Chancellorsville, by the way. It's, it's not as visited, mm-hmm. so it's easier to get around. And a good staff ride leader has to be aware of these logistics. Sometimes the logistics for a staff ride are just as important as the actual uh, insights that you're trying to convey to the group. Uh, so the logistics for Chancellorsville are relatively easy once you get off of Route 3 there uh, to the uh, west of Fredericksburg and get out into the, uh, into the battlefield itself. The other reason I love Chancellorsville so much is because it is just an absolutely perfect example of an operational uh, level campaign that fits very securely within uh, a theater strategic initiative uh, by both the Confederates and by the Union uh, in the American Civil War. Uh, And uh, for the Confederates, it was the campaign they didn't want to have when they didn't want to have it, where they didn't want to have it. Uh, They were hoping to get the jump on Joseph Hooker's Union Army of the Potomac that spring and actually embark on what would become the Pennsylvania campaign earlier than it actually happened. The plan was for this to begin in April, but uh, Hooker uh, jumps the Confederates on this and initiates the campaign before they can get themselves gathered together. And uh, for the Union, it represents one of the great lost opportunities of the war, where uh, the Confederates outnumbered over two to one, and uh, the uh, Union commander, Joe Hooker, actually comes up with a very strong campaign plan at the outset, but then blows it. And it's uh, a wonderful study in how a senior leader can uh, lose control of his own campaign and ultimately hand the initiative over to the enemy, and then the enemy being able to adapt uh, despite the odds, despite the paucity and means, and overcome these Herculean odds, which is what Lee and Jackson do uh, at Chancellorsville. Uh, and uh, the, the, the interesting takeaways at Chancellorsville, for me, revolve around failures in communication, failures in command and control, and successes in, in that same area, the role of the terrain being supremely significant, uh, the importance of intelligence, and how Hooker had very little on the Confederates, whereas the Confederates had a great deal on him, and how that set up the victory in many ways. Uh, The uh, command-team relationship between Lee and Jackson and Stewart, and the lack thereof uh, on the federal side. Uh, And then the strategic level significance, because obviously Chancellorsville is going to be the springboard uh, for the Confederate uh, uh, movement north, what will become the Pennsylvania campaign, uh, and the death of Jackson, which is a strategic level contingency point for the Confederacy, uh, which I mentioned in an earlier podcast. Uh, wonderful places to visit at Chancellorsville uh, inv- involves Stafford Heights uh, overlooking the Rappahannock River, where the Union had its artillery uh, that uh, supported the crossing uh, at the end of April. Uh, and uh, Sedgwick's crossing uh, then uh, later on, uh, progressing to the first day's fight on May 1st. It's a, a, an engagement uh, in open rolling fields, classic Civil War battlefield terrain. Uh, it's nicely preserved by the Civil War Trust. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the, the site of the last meeting where Lee and Jackson actually have their final council 
before the fateful flank march, which Jackson will embark upon, which is itself is a wonderful uh, ride to go on, you can take a bus uh, around the actual flank march route. The Park Service mm-hmm. has made those roads uh, workable for large uh, tourist buses. So you can reenact Jackson's uh, flank march without having having to do it on foot, <laughs> though the Marines are known to do that. The, the Marines are known to do many things. Yes, indeed. And I can tell you about one time I got caught behind a bunch of Marines coming out of Quantico, and they were hoofing the flank march, reenacting it in real time, and my bus was stuck behind them for the entire uh, period on that flank march. It was interesting. Uh, and uh, the attack on the 11th Corps, which was uh, what happened after Jackson's flank march was over, it's it's so enig- enigmatic, and, and uh, uh, the location of, of this uh, that the Park Service has preserved is in this beautiful rolling uh, field, which was once dense forest. And there's one giant tree right there where this uh, uh, point of attack occurred that would roll up the uh, Union right flank in the 11th Corps. And you can almost feel it there. It's 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 just a beautiful spot, uh, and it sets up the rest of the battle. Then Hazel Grove and Fairview, uh, two other important locations on the battlefield, two of the only clearings in the wilderness at the time, they still are clearings in the wilderness. Chancellorsville gives the participant the ability to really experience the terrain as it was at the time, probably better in most cases than other Civil War battlefields I've been on. I think Antietam and Gettysburg rank up there. Uh, The preservation there has been extraordinary. But you feel it, I think, stronger at Chancellorsville than at other mm. fields, and that's well. There you go. Yeah, I mean, the terrain there is is just so striking and and so deeply important to how that battle proceeds. Um, you've mentioned a couple of things that you like to talk about at Chancellorsville, which I think lead us into this next question, which is the Civil War happened a while ago, um, and certainly technology, weapons, medicine, armies have undergone gone significant changes uh, since the 1860s. Um, what is it that 21st century leaders, military or civilian, can take away from visiting and really thinking of deeply about a 19th century battlefield? This is the great question, isn't it? And if a staff ride leader has done their job well, there is no question by the end of the staff ride, regardless of where it may be, uh, uh, that uh, if they if they have done their job well, they have these these uh, questions answered in the minds of the participants. And, and you're right, Jackie, that the Civil War was a while ago, and therefore, uh, you know, it, it's natural to ask, what can we gain from this uh, old war? I think it's extremely significant that we still do staff rides and that we study the Civil War because of the incredible parallels that one can very easily discover uh, by getting out on the fields. Uh, There are so many things that the modern leader can easily extrapolate uh, by getting out there. And and you can read it in a book, certainly. But when you actually walk the field, it rams home into your head and it stays there. And I'm talking about issues such as uh, the importance of uh, uh, leader relationships and how not knowing your command team or knowing it very well can make all the difference in war. Civil-military relations. Uh, how, uh, in the case of Chancellorsville, uh, Joseph Hooker was given command of the Union Army by Abraham Lincoln reluctantly, but Lincoln, understanding that Hooker was the best man for the job at the time in that context, is willing to take the risk. He said he's willing to risk the dictatorship. 
uh, and uh, uh, the relationship on the other side between Lee and Davis uh, and how they were able to uh, work well during this campaign. Uh, also, the issue of intelligence, which I've, I've mentioned before, and it's, it, it's supreme significance at any level of war. Uh, if you don't know where your enemy is and what he's about, it's going to be very hard to attack him. Uh, it's going to be very hard to defend against him. It's going to be almost impossible to, to win a victory, regardless, again, of what level of war we're talking about. The importance of communication uh, between leaders on their own sides when they are not in the same place. The salience of that should be obvious to our listeners. Uh, looking at, at the possibilities of future war where satellites go down and we have to rely again on maps uh, and on uh, the ability to communicate person to person rather than through devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Civil War, that was how it was done. Uh, the telegraph failed at Chancellorsville for the Union Army, and it became a real problem for the ability of the Union Army to function there. I think one of the great Achilles heels of, of, of Hooker's uh, campaign plan and why it fell apart. Uh, yet today, terrain matters. Uh, it doesn't matter how you define terrain. Uh, our terrain today may be digital. Our terrain today may be in the domains that the Civil War was not predominantly fought in. Uh, for example, the air. They, they did have balloons, so it did matter to a very small degree at Chancellorsville and at other fields, but uh, they didn't have uh, much in the, in the form of undersea uh, 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 capabilities like we do today. And, of course, the war on the waters was very important for the Civil War as it is today. But uh, thinking about terrain and how terrain can assist your decision-making or inhibit it, or how can you use the terrain and adapt uh, your thinking to the terrain that you've been given. Uh, in future war, leaders are going to have to be flexible and adaptable and resilient, and they're going to have to think on their feet. Uh, we see... Lee and Jackson taking advantage of the terrain at Chancellorsville to do just that, and Hooker being befuddled by it in many ways mm-hmm. and not adapting fast enough. And that brings up the final big point, which is the ability to adapt and to be flexible when contingencies present themselves. Uh, I think Civil War battlefields are very good at giving us examples of this, this, this flexible sense of thinking when the chips are down and being able to make decisions in a time-constrained environment uh, where you may not have all the means that you would like to have, but you have to make decisions nonetheless, life-or-death decisions for your army and possibly for your country. Um, these are all takeaways, and I could go on, but uh, I think these are major ones that uh, going out on Civil War battlefields will offer to any participant at a senior service college. Great. So thanks so much for your time and for your um, explanation and, and help in understanding staff rides and also understanding uh, why the Civil War uh, is and remains significant for the study of military history and, and strategy and leadership uh, at, the, at the senior level. Thank you very much, Jackie. I've enjoyed it. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.